It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, this is a relief. If some of the people you know are looking rather shaggy, here's a headline from an interview done by the CBS station in New York, according a grooming expert who predicts that long hair and beards will be back in style by summer. Why? Because the barbershops are closed. The salons are closed. There's no place to go to cut your hair. Now, some people are cutting their own hair. They're having their partner cut their hair. Uh, but this is a problem. You know, long, long time ago when it was, you know, kind of the hip, cool thing to do, I had pretty long hair. Never went in for the beard thing. And a lot of people, I know this is well before this particular calamity. Uh, middle-aged guys seem to think they need a new look, so they grow a beard. You see a lot of them on TV. Um, but the long hair, I mean, look. Uh, how high a priority is it? I mean, women facing this too and coloring and all that. How high a priority is it to have your hair be, you know, perfectly styled or perfectly short when you're basically trying to avoid human contact in order to stay safe? So uh, I'm relieved that at least one expert says that we can just kind of, you know, let it all hang out. As David Crosby once said, let your freak flag fly, referring to his, the song Almost Cut My Hair. That was the name of the song, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. All right, let's get serious here because there's a lot of ground to cover, uh, beginning with story number one. A two-hour uh, coronavirus briefing at the White House yesterday. For the first time, and I know people have said this before, oh, Trump's getting more serious. Well, he's taking it a little more seriously. No, he's not. I mean, anybody who watched even part of that briefing yesterday saw a very different president of the United States. Uh, he was sort of grim-faced. He had some very um, stunning, sobering, in some ways shocking statistics to deliver. Now, some of the, the statistics that he recited have been reported before. Uh, but there's something about, you know, the formality of a president at a news briefing with the vice president and with various administration officials and medical experts saying these things that I think um, just kind of brings it home. And and I'm not, you know, we'll get to this in a minute, but I'm not, you know, letting the president off the hook. There is absolutely no question. This is not a pro-Trump or an anti-Trump comment. It is a matter of fact. There is a video that for the better part of two months, the president was minimizing the coronavirus. We've got it under control. At one point he said, and this is just in late February, so it's about a month ago. Um, at one point he said, uh, you know, you got to treat it like the flu. Uh, well, yesterday he said, this is not the flu. It's vicious. The uh, context was he was talking about this unnamed friend of his who he said is in the hospital and is in a coma. But obviously he was making a much broader point. So the thing that is really sort of hard to stomach at this point, even though we've had a few days to get used to the projections of a death toll, is the president is out there saying, remember, the guy once said it was out of control. Okay, he's out there telling the nation that if everything goes right, if all the social distancing works, if keeping the businesses closed and workers staying at home uh, pans out, if people don't violate it, if they follow the restrictions, if we get this thing under control, then at a minimum... 100,000 Americans will die, and the upper end of that range is 240,000 Americans would die. That's if things go well. That's the best-case scenario. Now, if that's not a smack in the head by a two-by-four, I don't know what is. 
Now, we can play the blame game. Yes, other people said this would happen, saw this coming. There was this British study a couple of weeks ago, which I talked about on the podcast, uh, that supposedly alarmed uh, some of the medical experts and people on the White House coronavirus team. But now, uh, here you have the President of the United States saying, we're heading into a very, very difficult two-week period. Could be two weeks, could be three weeks. And here I say, well, who knows? It could be a month or more. I want every president, excuse me, I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead, President Trump said. We're going to go through a very tough two weeks. And then he uh, came back to this. Um, We're going to start seeing some real light at the end of the tunnel, but this is going to be very painful, very, very painful two weeks. So if you try to put those numbers in perspective, and the New York Times has a piece on this, um, you look at the... Uh, lower end of the spectrum, the 100,000, that's about as many Americans as died in World War I. And it's 14 times as many Americans who died in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars put together under both George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Um, the Also, you, another way to put it is that uh, if the higher estimates uh, is more than the combined death toll under Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon for the Korean War and Vietnam Wars combined. So, you know, it's just hard to wrap your head around this, that so many Americans could die. Now, some of this, given the um, toxic nature of this virus, obviously some people get it and they go through some very rough days and um, they come out on the other end depending on their age, depending on their immunity system, depending on a lot of other factors. Um, but, but the fact is, it can be deadly. And, and we start to hear now about more names of people that we know. And, and it's not just, you know, uh, Tom Hanks has it, Prince Charles has it, Boris Johnson has it, Chris Cuomo has it. And I'll, I'll come back to Cuomo uh, in a few moments. Um, But now uh, some of the newspapers and other uh, media outlets are starting to do little profiles of people, whether they be nurses or retail clerks or just ordinary Americans from different walks of life who are dying from this disease. It doesn't mean that if you get it, you're going to die. Uh, But certainly a significant number of Americans are already dying. And the numbers keep increasing day after day. And I guess the president, you know, just became convinced. Maybe he should have become convinced of this earlier, but maybe but he became convinced that he had to prepare the nation for the skyrocketing numbers that are going to start now, the next two weeks. I think it may be the next three weeks. Now, some areas like Seattle that got that got hit early uh, have had some uh, success in at least you know bending that uh, so-called curve a little bit, and you see the rates of infection start to go down. But nationally, and especially with not all um, areas of the country being able to get have as many tests kits available as they want, we still don't know the magnitude of it. Uh, so the the time story is sort of this look back. Here are things that President said, you know, just last week he was talking about he hoped, he wished, it was aspirational, that the, the churches could be packed for Easter, that businesses could start to reopen. At this news conference uh, last night, uh, the President said he knew all along that this could be a killer of, you know, just historic proportions. I thought it could be, he said. I knew everything. I knew it could be horrible, and I knew maybe it could be good. I don't think he meant good, but I think he meant better than expected. Um, But he said, I want to give people hope. You know, I'm a cheerleader for the country. 
So this is an interesting approach uh, by a president who has been so fiercely criticized by the media, and obviously he's criticized the press uh, harshly as well. Uh, he has kind of a choice now that the death tolls are going into the hundreds of thousands, at least projected at this moment. Either he can say, well, we just didn't know. We had no idea this was going to happen. And it looks like he ignored scientific advice and he looks like, uh, you know, it was almost willful ignorance. Or he can say, sure, I knew this, but it was my job as president to keep spirits up around the country, not to let people get depressed and not to let them be despondent. Um, despite the fact that the stock market's been plunging, that many of them, many people are losing their jobs or being furloughed uh, by major companies, major, de- major department store chains. Um, it is, you know, financially, spiritually, medically, emotionally, uh, this is an unbelievable crisis. You have the Secretary General of the UN saying this is the gravest threat faced by the world since World War II. Uh, now, Trump did not address yesterday why the testing was so slow, why he waited to recommend, you know, canceling of large events and social distancing and closing businesses and schools. It was the governors who took the lead, particularly in states like New York, New Jersey, California, Illinois, that were hardest hit early on, then joined by Maryland and Virginia and other places. You have the mayor of D.C. uh, now telling people if they violate the stay-at-home order that is uh, um, prevalent in this region, where I'm speaking to you from, uh, they will face 90 days in jail and $5,000 fines. Do I think that Mayor Muro Bowser is actually going to put a lot of people in jail? No, I don't. I think she's trying to scare people into complying. Uh, Anthony Fauci, who has such high credibility ratings, is a guy who is an expert on infectious diseases and has been working on such diseases in the federal government since the Reagan administration. He was asked at yesterday's briefing, well, you know, this minimum $100,000, excuse me, this minimum toll, projected toll of 100,000 deaths, um, would it have been lower if the country had moved quicker, if the administration moved quicker, if the social distancing guidelines had been put into place earlier? And what Fauci said, and this will disappoint some of the you know, Trump haters who think that, well, Fauci tells the truth and the president does not. Here's what he said. If there was virus there, meaning in America, that we didn't know about, then the answer to your question is probably yes. Now, the only trouble with that, says Dr. Fauci, is that whenever you come out and say something like that, it always becomes almost a soundbite that gets taken out of context. If there was virtually nothing there, then there's nothing to mitigate. In other words, we don't really know. We didn't really know at the time it was in China, but hadn't started its spread around the globe. How much of it was in the U.S. just not showing up because of the lack of testing? Or uh, was it not very prevalent here, in which case it would have been harder, no matter what we did um, to keep the death toll down? So, uh, you know, the president has been getting into these fights, as I mentioned, with PBS's uh, Yamish Alcindor, with CNN's Jim Acosta. He was a little bit more um, civil with Acosta yesterday. Acosta came back and said, hasn't your thinking on this evolved? You're taking it more seriously now. Uh, Trump saying he's not about bad news, wants to give people hope, the feeling that we all have a chance. Um, and that's when he made the cheerleader comment. And uh, Acosta said, you don't like the question, but are you taking responsibility? And Trump said, I know you well enough, so it's not meant to be a fair question, but it is a fair question. I think we're way ahead of schedule in terms of numbers, I think, I hope. But if we can keep it under the minimum numbers, the country has done a great job. All right, let's move on to story number two. A a number of major news organizations are not sending reporters to these White House coronavirus briefings. And the reason, according to the Washington Post, is not because 
They think Trump doesn't tell the truth. They don't think it's newsworthy. There's a little bit of that in this piece. Mostly, it's to protect their own health. Here's the lead. Reporters keeping their distance because they're concerned about the health risks at a time when many consider the president's evening news conferences to have become increasingly less newsworthy. I, I think the second part is just simply not true. There are days when they don't make much news. There are other days when they make huge news. And if you don't like or care or uh, want to bother with what the president says, then what about what Fauci says? What about what Deborah Burke says? What about what Mike Pence says? Um, the decision by such outlets as the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNBC to stay away from these briefings, uh, maybe fundamentally changing the character of the briefings. Um, the president has primarily engaged with TV journalists. Look, that's their job. You're in a television business as I am. You got to be seen. You can't phone it in. You can't Skype in. You got to show up. Um, and so this is true when it's in the Rose Garden. It's true in the uh, what's called the James Brady press briefing room uh, inside the West Wing. Uh, it's almost unheard of, the Post says, for leading news outlet not to send a reporter to a presidential news conference. It's also highly unusual for a presidential news conference not to make news. But I, I think most of them do make news. You may not agree with the news. You may not like what the president says. But they're news. They make headlines. They're talked about on TV all day long. Now, CNN says it plans to continue covering the briefings, as do MSNBC and Fox News, even though certain pundits, as I said yesterday on CNN and MSNBC, saying, oh, we shouldn't carry these live. He's spreading misinformation. We should just watch it, and then we, we should tell you uh, the things that we think are true. We don't think you should be able to hear from the president. Um, the Post also stopped sending, uh, not only sending reporters to briefings, but skipping its rotation in the press pool. The major organizations, they take turns because, you know, only a small number of journalists can travel with the president to certain tight quarters. So when he went to Norfolk over the weekend for the launching of that U.S. hospital ship, um, the Post didn't go. Uh, and the story says the, those moves were prompted by health concerns. And by the way, that briefing room that you've all seen on TV so many times, it used to have 49 seats. It was a hot ticket. It was scaled back under the social distancing to 25 last month. And now, here it is, April 1st, only 14 of those seats are available so the reporters can sit uh, far apart. Uh, However, the Washington Post can't help but point out that one of the people who is attending is the White House reporter for OAN, One American News, Chanel Rion, uh, who on Monday... She compared the number of uh, coronavirus deaths to the number of children killed by their mothers through elective abortions every day. She asked the president, do you agree with states who place coronavirus victims above elective abortion? So she's got, obviously, her own ideological agenda. This is the woman who, a couple of weeks ago, um, said, you know, major outlets, including in this room, are, are following the Chinese Communist Party propaganda line. And that set up the president, when he was in a much more combative mood against the press than he was yesterday, to single out the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal as siding with China, though he did not explain exactly what he meant. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Uh, let's go on to story number three. I had to interrupt my home podcast yesterday with some breaking news about uh, CNN anchor Chris Cuomo. Uh, having the coronavirus. And it was interesting because it was just a few minutes later um, that um, his brother, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, Democratic governor, talked about it at his briefing. And he actually, uh, well, first of all, let me lead off this uh, segment with uh, Cuomo last night because he's doing, he looked pretty pale. He's doing the show now, even though he has the symptoms. He's quarantined in his basement, 
from his own wife and kids, as anybody would do. And, um, and he said this to viewers. He says, uh, my suggestion, don't get caught up in the numbers. It's the numbers I was just talking about. Why? They're just scary and out of context. We do not have the testing data to make sense of our reality beyond what we know is the face of it for an overwhelming number who get sick. And that face is mine, he said, telling his viewers for the first time in person, I tested positive. Scary? Yes, as you might imagine, but better me than you. He then worried about his family, as I mentioned. My concern is what I may have put on my family, just like you would. That is hurting me way more than anything the virus can do. So let's focus, let's use this example of me having it as proof that you can get it too. He wants to make himself an example because he was doing his job. He was going to CNN, he was in the studio, he was meeting people, and that's how he got exposed. If he had just stayed at home, he probably would not have been exposed to the virus. Now, Governor Cuomo talked about this, said uh, Chris Cuomo is my best friend. You know, we spent a lot of time together because our father was always working. Our, their father, of course, Mario Cuomo, the former, the late governor of New York State, um, talked about how Chris went to law school and became a lawyer. Uh, but then didn't like being a lawyer and told him he wanted to get into journalism. And, and Andrew said, you can't. You're already a lawyer. It's too late. But obviously, he actually worked at Fox News for a while, his first TV job, at least on a national level, and then went to ABC News, where he became, uh, he was on Good Morning America and now has his show on um, CNN. And um, what, what the governor said was um, that it was Chris, his younger brother, who allowed their mother, Matilda, who was cooped up in an apartment in New York, to come visit a couple weeks ago, and that they had an argument about this because the mother is in her 80s, Matilda Cuomo, uh, the, the, the governor named the law after her to protect the elderly uh, during this crisis. And he shouldn't have done that in the view of the governor of New York State. Now, so peace and media questioning before this all happened, um, the fact that Chris Cuomo has several times during this crisis interviewed Andrew Cuomo on his primetime show. And the piece starts out by saying, look, lighthearted yet probing chats between the two have been illuminating and entertaining. Public's been better informed, but... The conflict of interest couldn't be more clear. Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo are brothers. They appear to be close. For the sake of journalistic integrity, their interviews need to stop. And Mediate makes this one other point that, you know, Chris Cuomo, his whole thing is to do combative interviews. Even the, his brother said that, to be argumentative and combative. That's his TV side, says Andrew Cuomo. When Kellyanne Conway comes on from the Trump White House, they have these, you know, 20 or 30-minute knockdown, drag-out fights. Um, could you ever see Chris Cuomo engaging his own brother in a knockdown drag battle like those he's had with Conway? That's the question posed by media. A part of me says, you know, it's a little uncomfortable at times to watch. He, you know, when he was a news anchor uh, for CNN on the morning show, if, if, if Governor Cuomo came on, he didn't do the interview. This is different now. It's an opinion show. Um, but of course, they're close. Of course, they're brothers. Of course, they're allies. I guess my view is everybody knows it. You see the two of them. You hear what they sound like. They both sound like Mario Cuomo and uh, Andrew especially. And you can factor that in. So I don't know that I would ban it. Uh, in any event, especially with Chris Cuomo now suffering from the virus, uh, wishing him the best. I've known him a long time. I've known Andrew a long time and hoping for a speedy recovery and hope his family doesn't get it. Story number four. You know, this ends up just being a sidebar uh, in this crazy environment we're now living in. Joe Biden said the other day in an MSNBC interview that he doubts the Democratic National Convention is going to be held in July. 
you know, ordinarily, I mean, these things are decided well over a year in advance. It was going to be in Milwaukee. Uh, you know, it's usually like 15,000 people, delegates and politicians and hangers on, and then another 15,000 journalists. I think Biden is just saying out loud what we all kind of assume. I can't see this happening in July. I think the plug is going to have to be pulled in some way. Um, one thing he said, well, he, he told Brian Williams we should listen to the scientists. And he said the reason the uh, convention was scheduled to begin, I believe it was July 12th, um, was to accommodate the Olympics, which had been scheduled for July 24. But now that the Summer Olympic Games in Japan have been postponed for a year, Biden is saying, well, maybe the, the Democratic convention will just be postponed. There is more time now. That could happen. The Republican convention, which is supposed to be in late August in Charlotte, I don't know whether that's late enough in the season, what the situation will be like in the virus. I don't think the Democrats want to let the Republicans be the only ones to have a, you know, a four-day infomercial in the form of a, of a political convention. I also just can't see this happening in Milwaukee in early July. It's just too close. Um, and maybe they both end up being a virtual TV show. A lot of people think they, these conventions have become a TV show Anyway, um, and it affects me because I was expecting to spend a week in Milwaukee and a week in Charlotte this summer, and we'll see if that happens. Finally, story number five, just sort of end on a lighter moment. If you haven't seen this, just Google it. You got to check it out. It's pretty cool. So Larry David, the irascible, you know, co-creator of Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, the crotchety character, most recently seen, in, at least, and he's got a new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm out, but most recently seen on the Saturday Night Live playing Bernie back when it was a Democratic campaign. I think he did a great, great Bernie Sanders. Well, he's done a public service announcement because he's trying to help out. And it's, he does it completely in character. And I'm not, I don't do a great Larry David, but if he's given me the license, because I am from Brooklyn, I will say, he starts out by saying, uh, you know, somebody put me up to this, because uh, this is not something I don't really ordinarily do, you know? But the idiots out there who are ganging, hanging around together, you're not following the social guidelines. What's the matter with you people? Are you morons? You're socializing too close, says Larry David. It's not good. You're hurting, you're hurting old people like me. Well, not like me. I have nothing to do with you. I'll never see you. But, you know, other, let's say, other old people who might be your relatives. And then he pivots and he says, you know what? This is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to stay in the house, sit on the couch, and watch TV. You may never have this again. You don't even, you know, it's like you don't even have to feel guilty about it. So because, you know, it's it's like Anthony Fauci doing some sort of Instagram video, I think, with Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors, who obviously doesn't have much else to do right now that the NBA season season, uh, has been uh, uh, suspended. Uh, or, you know, we'll see what happens when it comes to the uh, the fall when it ordinarily would start. But in any event, uh, to use Larry David in this way, I think, is a way of breaking through the static. Nobody wants to see a bunch of boring politicians saying, it is my considered judgment that you should stay in your house, and that would be best for the collective uh, good of humanity, uh, because young people are going to respond to that. They won't need to talk to, they need somebody to say, hey, Stay on your lawn, stay off my lawn. And it's just, it's a great video. It's like two or three minutes and it's worth checking out. Good for Larry Dayer. I hope he stays safe. I hope you all stay safe. Uh, there's so much to keep up with here. 
the daily images. You look at, you know, Central Park in Manhattan, hospital tents going up. Same thing, the New Orleans Convention Center has been turned into um, a temporary hospital. Um, just the pictures of the empty streets. I see people posting. I posted one the other day from the Capitol on Sunday. It was hardly anybody there around the Capitol. Even on a Sunday, like there used to be people, you know? Uh, a friend of mine from New York sent me Ninth Avenue, Midtown Manhattan, just absolutely deserted. It's good news in a way because it means people are staying home. They're being safe. They're less likely to get the virus, less likely to give the virus to someone else. At the same time, it is just surreal. It just makes you stop and go, wow, look at that. It's like a ghost town in, in the city that never sleeps and many other cities and suburbs and towns, particularly in hard-hit places like New Orleans and Detroit and some of the areas of California. So stay safe. Subscribe to the podcast, Apple, iTunes, Google Play, foxnewspodcast.com. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzBeater. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.